At the end of the 12th century, there was a guy named Richard I who was in power in England. Perhaps you don't know him by Richard I. Perhaps you may know him from history by Richard the Lionhearted. He was called Richard the Lionhearted because um, while he ruled in England, uh, he was at war most of his life. He was a warrior king. In the middle of his reign at the end of the 12th century, um, he was beloved by his people. He was a chivalrous king. He was one who protected his people and cared for his people, who had his people's best interest, history at least tells us, in mind. In the middle of his reign, though, he decided to go back to war, the Lionhearted did. Decided to go back to the Crusades, the third wave of the Crusades, where he and the king of France would go fight again in the Crusades. And he left his little brother, John, John of England. Ever heard of him? If you have, you've probably uh, only heard bad things about John of England. He was the younger brother of Richard the Lionheart. And uh, he, history at least tells us that he was selfish, incompetent, sly, harsh, graceless. He left his little brother as a regent in his place until he returned. And his brother took all the other people in power and pushed them to the side in the king's absence, and he um, built his own castles and made everything about himself. Much to the people's chagrin, they longed, the people longed and waited until Richard the Lionhearted would return again. Perhaps that's not so different from today. We long for a day where the Prince Johns of the world aren't in power, don't we? We long for a day where politicians and governors and bosses and teachers and people in authority don't have the spirit of John. And yet, if we're honest, when we think about the places of power and position that maybe the Lord has given us, really since the fall of man and Genesis chapter 3, there is a spirit of Prince John in us, isn't there? A desire to rule, a desire to reign, a desire for our own way. And yet, as believers in Christ, as the people of God, we long for a day where our King, our King Jesus, will return and make all things right. This morning, I want to show you that assurance yet again. Assurance of His coming and how we ought to live in view of the assurance of his coming. Turn with me to Revelation chapter 1, and we'll be in verses 7 through 11 this morning. Just turn to the end of your Bible, and you'll be in the book of Revelation chapter 1, verses 7 through 11. And as you turn there, remember from last week, we opened this book, and we said there's a big reveal, that God is a God who reveals, and he ultimately reveals that he, through his son, his son is coming back. And this book, the book of Revelation, as hard as it may be with all its symbols and all the difficulties and the symbols and the pictures that are to come may be, that it's not a book that is meant to confuse us. It's actually a book that is meant to bless us. That's what the opening words of the book of Revelation say. Those who hear it, those who listen to it, and those who obey it will be blessed by that not confused. And if you remember last week, we dealt with some of the meat and potatoes of the book, talked about the different schools of interpretation as people, good people in church history have walked through this book, looked at different schools of interpretation, looked at the outline of the book a little bit. And then we saw the the chief reveal, 
that God reveals chiefly in the book of Revelation. What are the first few words of the book? The revelation of the timeline. When is he going to come back? No. The revelation of Satan and demons and angels? No. The revelation of judgments? No, even though all those things we discover. The revelation singular of Jesus Christ. Just to note, this is, this is no extra cost, okay? No extra cost. When you think about the book of Revelation or you talk about the book of Revelation, maybe this will help you out a little bit. You ought to refer to it not as the book of Revelations, plural. You ought to refer it to singular, the book of Revelation, because it reveals one. It reveals Jesus, one. The whole theme of the book of Revelation is Jesus Christ. And some of you are scratching your heads. You're like, how many times have I used the phrase Revelations? And some of you are sitting there going, hey, I'm going to figure out how I can annoy the pastor for the next year and say Revelations just to get under his skin. Singular. This is the revelation of Jesus Christ. And last week, in the first few verses, what you see is this great picture of Jesus. He's the revelation. He's also the resurrection. He's also the one who reigns. He's also the one who redeems. He's also the ruler who will reign with us in his kingdom. A beautiful picture to which John worships Jesus, the king. And this morning we come to verse 7, and you're going to see more about Jesus, not just his person and work, but it's almost like in the beginning of this vision that John gets from Jesus, who's the revealed, who is also the revealer, you're going to see the end. So you get bookends this morning. Revelation 1. 7 through 11, we'll see the theme of this book, of his second coming. We'll see the assurance of his second coming and how we can be assured that he is coming. And then how do we live? We're going to see a great picture how to live until he comes. Revelation 1, 7 through 11. Let me get some water. Verse 7. Behold, he is coming with the clouds and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. All the tribes of the earth will, <clears throat> will wail or mourn on account of him. Even so, amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come. The Almighty. I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. Verse 10, I was in the spirit on the Lord's day and I heard behind me a loud voice like the trumpet saying, write what you have seen in a book and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus and Smyrna and Pergamum and to Thyatira and Sardis and to Philadelphia and to Laodicea. Let's look back there. At verse 7, the first word, behold. Behold is the idea of look. Look, Jesus is coming. He's coming in the clouds. It's interesting when you think about 
clouds and God veiling himself in clouds. These are not ordinary clouds. When you see God coming in the clouds in the scriptures, it's a veiling of his glory, which is light that humans can't see. If you remember in the Old Testament, a number of times where this happens in the wilderness on Mount Sinai, you see Moses going up to get the Ten Commandments and you see this cloud where God's presence is and then you come to the New Testament about Jesus' second coming and you see in 1 Thessalonians 4, Paul say that he will come in the clouds. It's interesting in the book of Daniel, which I referred to last week. In the book of Daniel, you see this apocalyptic prophetic text about the end to come And in Daniel chapter 7, and I think this is where we get this here, in chapter 7, we see verse 13, and I saw one like the Son of Man coming with the clouds of heaven. See, this is prophetic. This is the picture that the scripture gives us. And then not only is he coming in the clouds, everyone will see him. All will see him. Those who pierced him, That's straight out of Zechariah chapter 12. Those who pierced Jesus, the Son, will see him. So all will see him, those who pierced him and put him on a cross. All the tribes of the world, people that will rejoice at his coming, and also the people who will mourn. This text says that all the tribes will wail. I don't think that's a wailing because they're going to be repentant. I think that's a wailing because they haven't believed upon the one who has saved them from their sins, and so they are mourning because they are going to experience the judgment at the second coming of Jesus. Revelation 19. I'm just going to show you the end. We're going to spend most of the year walking through this, so we won't see this. But Revelation chapter 19 is the fullness of what he's saying in this vision in chapter 1. So let me just read it to you and remind you of it. As a believer in Jesus, there's much anticipation in these words. Think about your life. And oftentimes where you say, come, Lord Jesus, come, here's what it is. Then I saw the heavens opened, and behold, a white horse, the one sitting on it called Faithful and True. And in righteousness, he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems. This works with a raspier voice a little better. And he had a name written like the one no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called the Word of God. And the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and purple, all followed him on white horses. From the mouth comes a sharp, his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron. And he will tread the winepress of fury with the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Your first thought this morning is just this. See, Jesus came the first time as a suffering Savior, but he will return as a conquering King. He came the first time in humiliation, but the second time he will come in exaltation. Can I ask you the question this morning? When he comes, because he will, and listen, his coming is imminent, meaning it could, he could come back at any time. There is nothing in history left 
to happen for him to return? Nothing. His return is imminent. So because of that, the question is this, which side of the divide, which side of the divide will you be on? It's a serious question. You see, if you know him, if you know him, you will rejoice at his coming. You long for his coming if you know him, and yet if you do not know him, his second coming doesn't bring rejoicing for you, it would bring judgment for you. So which side of the divide are you on? The beauty is this, there's still time. There's still time today to trust him, to know him, to know God through his son Jesus who's died on a cross for you. He's done something that you couldn't do in and of yourself. That he's died in your place because your sin sits on you. And you can't get it off of you, but Christ can. Because he's the perfect, faithful witness, the son of God who died on a cross for you. That takes away your sins. That takes on the wrath of God that you deserve for you. What a beautiful message the gospel is. Believe in that message today if you haven't. And if you are on the right side of that divide, are you making the most of your time today? Are you making the most of the time with the people that you love, that don't know Jesus, that you would ask God to do a work that only his spirit could do in their life, that you would open your mouth and share the lasting news of the gospel with them, that they might spend eternity in heaven as well? If you're a skeptic, And you're reading these words, verse 7. You're reading these words and you're saying, why should I believe the messenger? Why should I believe this message? Why can I count on it? Can I count on this message at all that comes from the words of John a couple thousand years ago? I mean, heck, it's been almost 2,000 years and he said that Jesus is going to return. He hasn't. If you're a skeptic, you may be thinking that if you're reading this passage. So what, why ought I believe this? You see, God puts his stamp on this. Look at verse 8. Verse 8 says that God is the Alpha and the Omega. And if you're a Christian, you know that phrase, Alpha and Omega. You may even use it for God. You understand it to mean the, the beginning and the end, that he is the beginning and the end. But he is the beginning and the end of something more than that. See, the words Alpha and Omega are the first and last ver words of the, of the alphabet in Greek. You may know that too. But there's more meaning than just beginning and end. It's the beginning of knowledge and understanding and the end of knowledge and understanding as well. Knowledge and understanding come from his hand. Think about the English language. In our alphabet, what do we have? We got five vowels. We got 21 consonants. We put those together and we get these things called words, right? And words have meaning, meaning that we can communicate to one another. And so you get words, you get phrases, you get sentences, you get paragraphs. The way in which you have any understanding and any knowledge as someone who speaks English is understanding that alphabet. Here's what we're saying. 
We're saying that all knowledge and all understanding come from God above all of it. You didn't have an original thought, I'm sorry. It's all from him. And so catch this, the connection between verse 7 and 8 is this. The vision of God says that Jesus is going to return. How can I bank on that? Because God is the author of understanding all of it and wisdom, all of it and knowledge, all of it. There's nothing outside of that. And so as sure as the alphabet gives you in English meaning and understanding, Jesus will return. You can bank on it because God is omniscient. God is omniscient. He is all knowledge and all understanding is rooted in him. You catch that? And it says something else about God. Who is and who was and who is to come. You can't say that about yourself, can you? That you existed before, you exist now and later. See, God is also transcendent. He is eternal. He is not confined to space and time like you and I are, who are wondering what's going to happen tomorrow. He's outside of that. He's beyond that. He sees it all. Not only does he see it all, because he is eternal, this text says he's almighty. He's all-powerful. He's omnipotent, which means he's directing all of it as well. And so who's in a better position to know all things and direct all things. You got any better endorsement to the truth that Jesus is coming than that? I don't think so. See, Jesus is coming is more sure than that Amazon package that you're sure is going to come today. And I don't know what's going to come, right? I mean, I, I mean, Amazon is like crack cocaine. I need to budget it better. Because they're so good. I can count on them. And, and, and catch this, even more so than that, even more sure than that, even more sure that the Cowboys are going to lose in the first series of the round of the playoffs. And that's pretty darn sure, Robbie. Where are you at? I'm going to give you time to recover. You don't get to say anything after. I know you're going to talk again today. Don't say anything about the Texans. They play tough. Even more sure than that. I'm being silly, but seriously. It's sure. Here's your second thought. Our assurance of his return rests in God's divine attributes, in God's character, that he is omnipotent, that he is omniscient, that he is transcendent. You got better, no better endorsement for anything you believe than that. This quote has been surfacing a lot in social media by different people, but I think it's relevant here. A.W. Tozer, again, I like A.W. Tozer. He says, the most important thing about you is what you think of when you think of God. What do you think of when you think of God? Do you think all-powerful? Do you think eternal, outside of time, sees all things, knows all things, all-knowing? Is that how you see God? Because if you see him that way, you will tend to trust what he says. That's true. You will tend to trust the things that you can't see in the future. That's true. What do you think about God? What do you think about his character? 
because that will tell you a lot about the way that you choose to live your life. And maybe you say, well, great, that's wonderful, the sure hope of Jesus is coming. So what about today, though? I mean, that's great that I have that promise that's guaranteed by God and his character and who he, ver- who he is, and yet, how does that affect my today? How am I supposed to live today? Look at verses 9 through 11. Verse 9 really tells us about John's circumstance. See, in the beginning or the end of the first century, Christians had it pretty rough, a lot rougher than we do today. So when you read verse 9 through 11 and you read of the persecution and the tribulation that John is going through or anywhere else in the New Testament, or you spend any time looking at the first century and all the Christians of any time in history before the last hundred years in our lives. And you feel like this real disconnect, right? Because I'm not persecuted like that. I don't have tribulations as a Christian like that, so how in the world does any of this apply to me? But man, in the first century, especially at the turn of the first century, under Domitian's rule, the end of Domitian's rule at the end of the first century in Rome, it was rough for Christians. Christians were considered a contagion because of their superstition kind of religion. Politically, they were considered they were considered to be disloyal to the state. They weren't nationalist. They didn't care about their country because they wouldn't worship the Caesar. Christians in the first century religiously were actually, ironically enough, considered atheists because they wouldn't worship the pantheon of all the Roman gods. So they were considered as people who didn't believe in God. And socially, they were outcast. Remember, first century, there wasn't equal rights for everybody. It was very much a caste system, a class system the haves and the have-nots, and everybody in between. And for the Christian, the Christian can't live that way because the Christian believes that everyone is made in the image of God. And so they would care for the least of these and the weak. And they also wouldn't participate in the gross sexual immorality of the first century. There's nothing new under the sun, y'all. Nothing. And so they were outcast socially. Where do you think that got John as a Christian or these seven churches in Asia? Here's your thought. See, until Jesus returns, the normal Christian life is costly, not comfortable. The normal Christian normalcy for the Christian historically has been costly, not comfortable. And I know that feels foreign to you. It does to me. And so this text reminds us that John, why was he on the island of Patmos? Check out this island, by the way. I mean, I know if you put some houses on it, it looks like a cool place to be, like a touristy place to be. Actually, you can go there now, and it is kind of a touristy place. But back then, this was like Alcatraz for people in Rome, exiles, people who are being penalized as criminals, And so the island itself 
was a prison. And there was harsh labor. And guess what? The Apostle John, because he was a faithful witness, and because he shared the testimony of Jesus with people around him, he ends up there on a rock. He ends up doing hard labor. He ends up being treated like a criminal for being faithful to Jesus. He didn't get a new house for being faithful to Jesus. He didn't get health, wealth, prosperity for being faithful to Jesus and having faith in Jesus. He got exile and hardship. One commentator said it this way. He said, the title of this section of Revelation ought to be something else. It ought to be John, the apostle who suffered. And then the subtitle should be, Prosperity Gospelers Do Not Apply. Listen, not always as a Christian, if you're living for Jesus, not always will your life be comfortable. It will be costly. And why will it be costly? And even if we don't live in that day, even if we don't live in that day, it will be costly if we live for Jesus, if we live out our faith, if we tell people about the Lord, if we live in a way that honors him, even in a culture that doesn't. You may not be the most popular in school because of it. Do you hear that? You may not be the most popular in school, kids, because of it. You may not get the promotion because you're not willing to cut corners in your business because you want to have Christ-like character. You might not be seen in the lights the way you want to be seen in the lights because you follow Jesus. See, it's interesting that Jesus' life was costly. It was ultimately costly for him. And to live as a Christian is often costly or it ought to be. And what do you do with your comfort? Listen, it's a blessing. I'll say that first. The comfort in which you and I live is certainly a blessing from the hand of God. So the issue isn't comfort in that way. Because what we end up doing is we have this kind of false sense of guilt about the fact that we own a home and it doesn't have a dirt floor or you're not persecuted. And so we have this sense of guilt. Should we have this sense of guilt about it? I don't know about you. I go back and forth on those things, how I live. Or I get to go to Chick-fil-A three times a week, just not Sunday. I mean, there's blessing in that. I don't think the question is that we have some false guilt about the comfort, that kind of comfort that we live in. But here's what I do think we struggle with. I know I do at least. Because I live in that blessing and comfort, do I just tend to try to provide myself more comfort and lack of dying to self in the way I ought to die to self to serve my king? That I seek more after my comfort and ease than I do pleasing him it's a whole lot easier not to share my faith than share my faith. That's pretty uncomfortable. It's a whole lot easier to go along with that crude joke in the workplace and laugh it off 
than to not. See, until he comes, the normal Christian life is costly. It's not just comfortable. The problem, one of the problems we also have in this is that we live in a culture that doesn't tell us to die to self. We, we live in a culture that says, do whatever you want. Everyone has to accept you exactly the way you are. Don't change. Don't work on the things that are struggles for you. Make everyone else around you accept you for who you are. And there's a really confusing message there for Christians because there's two sides of this coin. There is the truth that we are accepted by God, but we're accepted by God on our basis or the basis of Christ. You're accepted by God on the basis of what Christ has done for you, not in and of yourself. You're accepted and you're loved by God because you're made in his image. That is true. You're fearfully and wonderfully made. And yet at the same time, if you know Jesus, you ought to be at war with what the Bible calls your flesh inside of you that will be there until you die. Paul even goes as far as to say that you ought to make war against your flesh. Don't accept the things in your life that need to change. Reject them, learn and grow. Paul also says this this way, be conformed more and more and more into the image of Christ. And you know what that means? That means repentance ought to mark our daily lives, knowing positionally we are accepted by God, we are loved by God, and yet at the same time, he wants us to grow into Christ's image, and that's not always the message you hear from culture, that's not always the message you hear, God bless them, from the church, it's not always the message you hear from a well-meaning counselor. See, the life of a believer is acceptance by God but it's also repentance and growing in Christ. And so it is costly in that way. They ought to be growing and changing. So he's coming. And the assurance of that coming is the character of God. But until then, until then, we live for him, which may cost us something. As Jesus would say, take up your cross and follow me. Be conformed to my image, which might not always be that popular in the world that you live in. Richard I. He did return. He did return to find his little brother John making a mess of things. One historian said it this way when he returned, the people of England suffered under John, longing for the return of the king and praying that it might soon be over. Then one day Richard came. He landed in England and marched straight for his throne. Around that glittering coming, many tales are told, woven in the legends of England. John's castles tumbled like ninepin. Great Richard laid claim to his throne, and none dared stand in his path. 
The people shouted their delight. They rang on and on the bells. The lion was back. Long live the king. One day, a greater king will lay claim to a realm greater for sure than England. Those who have abused the earth in his absence, seized his domains, and mismanaged his world will all be swept aside. See, how much more will the lamb who is the lion of the tribe of Judah, how much greater will his reign be that all things will be made right. That's God's pledge to you, Christian. Did you know that? It's his pledge to you. That's his guarantee. That's his assurance to you. Because he's the alpha and the omega. He was and is and is to come. And he's all powerful. He's almighty. He will bring this about. But until then, we live life for Christ. Your takeaway today is this. Live in the assurance of the lion's return. Let me pray.